This morning we are we're looking at Luke 4, uh, 1 through 13. Uh, this, is, this is a story that, that might be familiar uh, to you. Um, it's Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the, by the devil. Dun, dun, dun. Now, uh, this, is a, this is a story that we do this time of year. Uh, typically, the, the church worldwide sort of looks at, look at, looks at this story uh, or the one that's, that's found in Matthew. Um, and so we're looking at it again. I've done this story lots and lots and lots of times. Um, so it's kind of like Christmas and Easter in that, in that regard. It's like, how do I make this new? How do I make this fresh? How do I? So I've tried to. Uh, we'll see if that works. Um, so anyway, so Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, you'll find the scripture behind me on the screen in front of you. If you've got it with you, you can follow along uh, that way before we read. Let's pray. as we sit in the silence. We uh, pray that it heightens anticipation. Because we long to hear a word from you. We long to hear your voice. And However it is that that works, um, we ask that you'd make that happen here this morning, that you would do in us whatever it is you need to do uh, to bring us what we need so that we can become more like you, Jesus. Speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. I'm not going to get into it right now, but that, that's always one of those fascinating things. He was led. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You know, the wilderness is a, is a chaos. The wilderness is a wandering. The wilderness evokes all sorts of images um, and the Spirit led him into that place, the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. For 40 days. So we get the culmination of this. Right? It, there's the big three that Matthew and Luke sort of lay out for us, but for 40 days this was happening, and it culminates in these three that we're about to hear. For 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was very skinny. No. <laughs> I'm guessing, right, after 40 days, look, if we can't have fun reading scriptures, then what are we doing here? And at the end of them, he was very hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, people shall not live on bread alone. 
The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it'll all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God. Serve him only. The devil then led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. We will go that far. That's that's such a fascinating story uh, to me. Um, So we're going to get into this um, like this. And this is something uh, I'm just trusting that uh, if you were around uh, nine years ago, you probably forgot about it anyway. So I'm going to give it to you again. Here's the deal. Um, sometimes the wisdom that's found in, in things that are written for little children are just, are just too good and too beautiful and too deep for us big people not to experience again. Right? So I'm going to read to you a poem by Shel Silverstein. Meant for little children... Um, but I think for those, those big people in the room, um, I think if we really pay attention to it, it's got something there for, for us uh, as well. Um, and so this is from a book called Where the Sidewalk Ends, and it's called Sarah Cynthia Sylvia Stout Would Not Take the Garbage Out. Now this happens to be one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Shel Silverstein poems. There's another one about a dude picking his boogers, which I think is hilarious too. And then there's the, sh- the sharp tooth snail. and like, bite your finger off, bite the whole thing. Anyway, that's a good one too. Um, you can go read that later. But this one I think is, is, is my favorite one. So here it goes. It goes like this. Sarah Cynthia Sylvia Stout would not take the garbage out. She'd scour the pots and scrape the pans, candy the yams and spice the hams, and though her daddy would scream and shout, she simply would not take the garbage out. So it piled up to the ceilings. It filled the can. So it piled up to the, sorry, coffee grounds, potato peelings, brown bananas, rotten peas, chunks of sour cottage cheese. It filled the can, it covered the floor, it cracked the window and blocked the door with bacon rinds and chicken bones, drippy ends of ice cream cones, prune pits, peach pits, orange peel, gloppy glumps of cold oatmeal, pizza crust and withered greens, soggy beans and tangerines, crust of black burned buttered toast, grisly bits of beefy roast. The garbage rolled on down the hall, it raised the roof, it broke the wall. Greasy napkins, cookie crumbs, globs of gooey bubble gum, cellophane from green bologna, rubbery blubbery macaroni, peanut butter caked and dry, curdled milk and crusts of pie, moldy melons, dried up mustard, eggshells mixed with lemon custard, cold French fries and rancid meat, yellow lumps of cream of wheat. At last, 
the garbage reached so high that finally it touched the sky. And all the neighbors moved away. And none of her friends would come and play. And finally, Sarah Cynthia Stout said, okay, I'll take the garbage out. But then, of course, it was too late. The garbage reached across the state from New York to the Golden Gate, and there in the garbage she did hate, poor Sarah met an awful fate that I cannot right now relate because the hour is much too late. The children remember Sarah Stout. I always take the garbage out. That's good. You know, somewhere along the line. Here's the deal. For most of us in this room, we live in middle class, middle America, Ames, Iowa. Like, we feel pretty good about our lives. Um, most of the time, we feel you know, really comfortable with the way that things are. Let's, let's just be honest about it. Most of us live reasonably comfortable lives. We have things pretty good, right? Sure, there are things in our lives that just aren't, aren't quite right. We all have faults. We, we have some weaknesses. We have some places in our lives that we're like, eh, I wish that was a little bit different. But as long as nobody else knows about it, it's fine, right? No big deal. We just sort of leave those things alone. Let's not pay attention to them. Let's push them down. Let's ignore them. Let's, let's hide them as best we can, right? We, we all have what we might call junk or garbage in our lives, and we do our best to, to hide it. We don't want it, want it to be seen. But here's the problem with that line of, of thinking. Garbage smells. And if it isn't tended to, if it's not paid attention, if it's not taken out, eventually it begins to affect the other people in our lives. Right? Most, most of the time it begins with the people that we love the most. Right? And, and if we don't pay attention to it, 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 kinda, it can begin to feel like, like there's this sort of darkness that hovers over our lives. Like all that stuff we know is there, but we don't want to acknowledge and pay attention to eventually it, it leaks. We have this darkness over our lives that can, can sort of begin to give us a sense of, of alienation, of loneliness, of brokenness, of, of maybe a sense of, of being lost. And we can get to the point where we're not quite sure what to do about the darkness that, that hovers over our lives. But here's the thing. Long ago, the church knew this about us human beings. And so she did something very smart and wise she created, she decided to do something about it. The church created this entire season, 40 days to be exact. She announced this new thing called the season of Lent. Have you heard of this? The season of, of Lent. Started last week with Ash Wednesday. And Lent comes from the old English word Lenten, which just means spring. So it's, it's celebrated in the springtime, how convenient, leading right up to Easter. And it's a 40-day period to sort of cleanse the system. It's a 40-day period for us to, to, to sort of take, take the garbage out. I don't know if that metaphor is quite right. I don't know if we can call it garbage. That kind of makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. But, but the point is, things in our lives that we wish wasn't there, we wish weren't there, 
that didn't belong. And we want to sort of take the 40 days for self-examination, 40 days for looking in the mirror, 40 days to paying attention to that stuff, 40 days to confront the darkness in our lives so that we can make way for new light and new growth. Now, there are two reasons why I think this is significant. I think it's significant because the church created a 40-day period, a 40-day period to pay attention to that stuff in our lives. 40 days, and here's the deal, not so that we can feel guilty, because that's easy. We're all really good at that. It's not 40 days to look at all that stuff in our lives so that then we can feel super guilty about it. It's not 40 days for us to look at that stuff and then heap on ourselves a sense of shame. That's not what this is about, right? Remember, remember Jesus is just coming out of his baptism where he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And what did God say? You are my son, my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. So this is a 40-day period for us to, to look at ourselves, but not with the eyes of guilt, not with the eyes of shame, but with the, the eyes of the divine, which say to you and me, you are my child. You are loved. And so this period of 40 days is to look at ourselves through the gaze of love, through the gaze of the divine, so that we can be honest, so that we can, so that we can be curious, so that we can ask questions, be inquisitive about that stuff. Right. So that's the first thing I think is significant. Here's the second thing. I think it's significant that, that the church brings us into this time uh, with Jesus in the wilderness, right? being tempted by the devil. And notice in the story, Jesus doesn't ignore the darkness. He doesn't just hope that it will go away. No, Jesus confronts the darkness head on. Jesus acknowledges vulnerabilities. He doesn't run away from it. He stands there and faces it. It's important for us to confront the darkness in our lives so that it doesn't just jump out of nowhere and surprise us when we're not expecting it. So we're going to walk with Jesus through the wilderness. He's been there for 40 days and for 40 nights. He's been fasting the entire time, which means he's skinny and hungry. Like, What is it like when you miss a meal? Anyone want to tell me? What do you think? What does it feel like when you miss a meal? You get hangry, right? You get tired. You get frustrated. You get upset. Like your nerves are on edge, right? You miss a meal and you're like, Jesus has spent 40 days and nights with like his nerves are beyond gone. They're just gone. He's weak. He's tired. He's got nothing left. He is as vulnerable as you can be. That's when the darkness comes. Right? The darkness comes and says to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Tell this stone to be... You've been given this amazing ability, Jesus. Come on, man. You don't have to wait any longer. You can have this immediately. You can have it right now. You can satisfy yourself in the blink of an eye. That's how powerful you are. You can have it right now. And this, 
This darkness is with us all the time. This is the water in which we swim. This is our world. This is the culture in which we live. Listen to what Alexander Shia writes. He writes this. Here the temptation lies in the insustainability of short-term gratification represented by bread to be consumed versus the rewards of long-term effort symbolized by the stone as a part of a foundation of faith. So good. Short-term gratification, immediately and yet short-lived fulfillment. This is our world. Everything is a commodity, we're told. Everything, all things can be bought and sold, consumed. You don't have to wait. You can do it now. Look, we all have these pocket computers, right? These things we call phones, right? They're really computers. And uh, they're, they're amazing. At the, at the tip of our fingers, we have the department store, we have the grocery store, we have the hardware store, we have every single store that we can think of right at our fingertips. And with just a flick of a thumb, and without any thought whatsoever about budget, we can order whatever we want, whenever we want, whenever we are there. And then in two days, this magic, cute little blue bus will ride and show up in your driveway, and the driver will come out and put it right on your doorstep. Then they'll take a picture of it and send it to your account, and you can look at it. It's here. You can have it now. You don't have to wait. And we've even gotten really good at this, so good at it that we can anticipate what we need and when we'll need it so that we don't have to go to the store, so that we don't have to brave the cold. And we do it two days early because we know in two days it'll magically appear. You can have it now. You can have it immediately. You don't have to wait. You don't have to think about budget. You can just flick your thumb and order it and it will be here. And it's designed this way. Our world is designed this way. Designed to to fill us with this sense of need, want, desire to consume. This is our world. It's all designed that way. Ever heard of this thing called planned or designed obsolescence? Have you heard of this? I know Caleb has because we've talked about it. Here's, Here's sort of how it works. You have your phone, your pocket computer on which you depend, your whole life depends on that thing. You plug it in at night. You've had the thing for about two years. So you plug it in at night, which you always do, because in the morning you need it fully charged because of all the things you do on it. You wake up the next morning and you unplug your phone and you look at it and you only have 5% battery. And you're like, what? I had this plugged in all night. Right? And so you try and plug it in again, and then it plugs in, it's fine, it charges, and then a couple days later, it happens again. And you're like, what is happening here? And then a couple days later, it happens again. And your first thought is, oh my goodness, I think I need a new phone. Like it's been, it's been, it's been two years. Our thousand dollar phones are designed to begin failing us, are designed to begin deteriorating. A thousand dollar phone is designed to fail after two years. It's designed that way because they know we'll live into this reality of, I need a new one. 
we'll live into this reality of this created need in our lives. We become so dependent that when it begins to fail, we'll live into this instant gratification. We'll not think about it very often. We'll not even pay attention much to budget. We'll just be like, "Eh, it's time. And by and large, eh, we're fine with it. That's just the way it is. Look, man, $1,000. I expect to get more than two, 500 bucks a year? Give me a break. You can do better, Apple, Google, Samsung, whoever. You could do way better than that. But it's this thing, it's this reality where they, they just design things so that we'll live into this idea of instant gratification. Immediate but short-term fulfillment. Because what happens? You get your new phone, you're like, oh my goodness, it's so much better than my old one. It's really not. It's like the same thing. Just a few more bells and whistles, but it's the same thing. And yet we feel good about it, but what happens four or five days later, maybe a week later? It's just my phone. That's all it is. This is the world in which we live. If you are the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. You don't have to wait. Consume it now. You can have it immediately. And Jesus replies, it is written, people don't live on bread And if he would continue with that, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the divine. In other words, I don't have to sustain myself. I don't. That's the Father's work. That's that's God's job. God has promised to take care of me. Jesus refused to make immediate gratification his first priority. He knows that no amount of material stuff, we all know this, can ultimately bring any kind of fulfillment whatsoever. If we need it, God's going to be there. God's going to provide it. God's going to provide it in God's time. If only we just stop, breathe, be patient. I don't need it now. It's going to be okay. The darkness is stubborn. It just, it just won't, won't go away. The darkness brings Jesus to a high place so he can see all the kingdoms of the world. And he says something like this. Look, I've been given, these have all been given to me. Really? Really? Is that true? All of this has been given to me. All of these kingdoms and their authority, I will give it to you. All you got to do is worship me. All you got to do is is bow down to me. All you need to do is worship me and do things my way. This one's familiar too. We know this darkness. This darkness, again, is with us every day. This darkness whispers in our ears, look, I know you got goals. I know you got plans. I know you have ambitions. I know, I know where you want to be, where you want to get to. You want nothing more than to win because I've set the world. I've whispered in so many people's ears that everybody just wants to win. It's like, like your thing. Do it my way. Do it my way. You don't have to be honest all the time. Are you kidding me? Nobody's honest all the time. The people with power are going to think you're weak. 
Like, it's okay for you to do it my way. If you're going to want to get far in this world, you're going to have to compromise your ideals every once and every now and again. It's just going to, you're just going to have to cut some corners. You're going to have to cheat a little bit here and there. You're going to have to sell something and you're going to have to tell people that it's way more than it actually really is because, whew, then they'll buy it and you'll get ahead and you'll win. Right, a little white lie here, a little white lie there, a little dishonesty here. It's going to get you to where you want to be. Just do things my way. And Jesus looks at the darkness and says, I don't follow you. I'm uncompromising in my commitment to God and God's ways. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve God only. Jesus was uncompromising in his could have had it all, and he laid it all down. He's uncompromising in, in being committed to God and God's ways. What is the way of God, the way of the divine? It's one word. I'm looking for one word. It's the way of... Yes. The way of love self-sacrificing, self-giving love, which is, of course, exactly how Jesus lived. We could talk about this every week, and we almost do. Like, I find a way to mention it. That, that would be fine. That'd be great. Which is exactly the way Jesus then lived his life, self-sacrificing, self-giving love, all the way from the time he decided to do what he, what he was going to do in and around Galilee and Jerusalem, all the way to the cross, just constantly giving himself away. But that doesn't end this whole thing. It's, it, the darkness doesn't quit, never quits. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This one's interesting, isn't it? And I think it's something that we all do more than we'd like to admit. It's, it's sometimes a pattern that we get into. We sort of devise a test to see if God is as faithful as God says God is. To see if, if devise a test to see if maybe we're just all wasting our time here. Here's sort of how it goes. Here's just an example. Something like this. Like we could use, we could do this a million different ways. But you're driving along, you're either in your car or you're on your bike, whatever. You get a flat tire, right? And one of our responses can be and often is, God, if you could just get me out of this thing, that would be great. In fact, if you get me out of this thing, I promise you I'll be good. I promise you I'll make better decisions. I'll pr I promise you I'll make the changes I need to make in my life in order to, in order to do better, to be Better. Look, I'll go to church every Sunday. I'll find a place to serve. I'll, I'll give a little more, right? We make deals with God. We, we strike bargains with God. We promise to be good if, right? Our relationship with God then becomes transactional. If I'm going to do something for you, then I expect something in return. It becomes a transactional thing. We make God into Santa's image. He knows when we're sleeping and when we're awake. He knows if we've been bad or good, so be good. For goodness sake. What happens when God doesn't 
magically get you out of that situation? Did God fail? Did God, did God mess up on this whole test thing, this whole, this whole bargaining thing? Did God then just go back on God's promise to always be there for you? Is salvation a farce? Is it a sham? You see, deals with God, testing God, rarely ever works. Sometimes you'll get lucky, right? But most of the time, it doesn't work because deal-making and testing God is less about God and God's promises and God's presence with us, and it's more about our sense of fear. It's more about our own, our own sense of anxiety inside. What if there's another way? Like what, if, what if we get a flat tire? And in that moment, instead of immediately bargaining with God and testing God to see if God really is as faithful as God says God is, what if we just stopped and paid attention to our breath? And just reminded ourselves that God is as close to us as the very air we breathe, no matter where we are or when we are there. And, we, and then we said a prayer. God, you are with me. If I make my, death, my bed in the depths, you are there. If I go up to the highest heaven, you are there. You have promised to be with me. Here are my hands. Here are my feet. Here are my eyes and nose and ears. Here is my mouth with which I speak. What's next? Surprise me. Can you tell the difference? Can you feel the different level of anxiety? Because the reality is, is you probably already have exactly what you need right there. So we don't need to test God. God has already promised to be there. But sometimes our, our fear and our anxiety can push us into making irrational decisions when in reality we already have what we need, including the presence of God. Friends, confronting the darkness allowed Jesus to become exactly who the Father wanted him to be. And I'm guessing that every single person in this room wants to become exactly the kind of person that, that God wants you to be, all of us to be. And sometimes it takes confronting the darkness to do that. Sometimes it takes self-examination, taking a look at, at what's inside, being inquisitive, and asking questions. What's that all about? And sometimes, sometimes we need some help. And we've got a whole community full of people here who have See, we're a lot like Jesus, right? Jesus shared his humanity with us. Fully human, vulnerable, like open to being harmed. Right? 
also divine. So he's in the wilderness alone with the Spirit. But we're not exactly like Jesus. We'd like to get there. But we need a community of people. That's why the church is called the body of Christ. Sometimes we need, sometimes we need friends. Sometimes we need family. Sometimes we need therapists. Sometimes we need counselors. We need one another for this. So we're going we're gonna to end with a prayer, and it's a communal prayer. We're going to pray this prayer all together to sort of emphasize our need for one another and the fact that, look, man, none of us is alone. We're all in this together. So we're going to pray, and we're going to ask God for change, for transformation, for new growth. So let's stand together, and we're going to pray. Soon. In a second, we'll pray together. I forgot to ask you about this beforehand. Yeah. Stop. Breathe. Maybe dance a little. We're going to be fine. Do you want me to just read it? Huh? You could repeat. That's a good idea. We'll, we'll do that. Because the anxiety level in here is... <laughs> It's like this. Especially with them, you can just read it all over their face. It's fine. Don't worry about it. You can take a breath. Thank you. See, we need each other. One person says, this is what you need. I'm like, that's what we need. Repeat after me. Loving God, you know us better than we know ourselves. We have been wandering Lost on the journey to find both you and our true selves. We have tried that which does not last. Followed that which leads to nowhere. Bought things that finally do not satisfy. But you are a patient and persistent God. You love us beyond what is reasonable and pursue us even to the darkest of places where we seek to hide from your presence. You call us by name. Your search for us is unending. You hold out a hand and say, Come, come to me. Forgiving God, Open our eyes and let us see the way back to you. Open our eyes and let us see you running down life's road to welcome us home. Amen.